0: If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, where we resume our study this morning. We are on the last chapter of this book. We have been making our way through and it's been a challenging study, a good study, but a helpful study in the sense that it's compelling us to look at. Uh, this prophetic book uh, in the Old Testament that w- was very accurate in terms of how it saw history unfold throughout the years. And, but it's also been challenging us to how, how do we live in a world where, we're, where our faith is challenged? How do we live in a world where we are uh, the enemy, not because we've chosen that path, but because of the God whom we serve? How do we live in a world where we are told repeatedly, you will have trials, it will be difficult? there will be death, there will be famine, there will be heartache, you will be heartbroken, you will be disappointed. And in all those things, Daniel reminds us also that in all that, in every single bit of that, that God reigns. That God reigns, and the very fact that He reigns, it asks the question of us as believers in Him, what will we do? Will we succumb to despair and depression and devastation? Will we become embittered? That's certainly an option, and some people choose that. Or will we believe the words of Psalm 16 and be reminded that we are not alone? God has not turned us out or over to ourselves. God has not given us over so that we can be eaten up by despair, No, no, no. God is using these years, this time in our lives, to work something in us that is not available to us in our flesh, that only comes by the Spirit. And so every last pain and hardship is under, and hear me say it this way, the good, loving, merciful hand of God that we might grow in righteousness and holiness. And with that in mind, that's what I love that we've come to chapter 12. I was just telling Richard before the service, these first four verses are beautiful, beautiful, hopeful. They're hard. There's still some hardship to it, but it's getting at this thing. The the primary principle here is getting at the very hope that we have as the people of God. And so, without further delay, I won't To turn to our attention directly to the book of Daniel. This morning we're just looking at the first four verses of Daniel chapter 12. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and its power. We yield to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit work now in the reading and giving of your word, and that it would work mightily in our hearts to transform us and to remind us of the resurrection hope that we have in you. As through Christ we pray. Amen. Old Testament scholar, commentator Ralph Davis, he writes of a story that took place in 1540. These two young Scottish men were being persecuted, had been persecuted for their Protestant faith, and they were being led to be burned alive at the stake. Their sentence had been passed, and there was nothing for it. They were they were going to be killed for their Protestant faith. And as they were led, one of them was really joyful in the moment. Just joyful, singing songs and uh, reciting scripture. And he kind of noticed that his companion was a little dour. I mean, you know, at the prospect of being burned alive, I might be a little dour too. So I'm going to cut the guy some slack. Um, but he noticed his companion was dour. And he kept trying to encourage him, oh, don't look so downcast. You know, hey, it's, this, is, this is not all bad. And, and, I'm, and I've, I find, as I was reading the story, I was sympathizing with the guy who was dour. I'm thinking, well, it's not all bad, but it's pretty bad. I mean, we're about to be burned alive. Anyway, the cheerful one began to remind his friend of the deep truths of Scripture. He began to recite Scripture. He began to recite Scripture and And offer psalms and hymns to his friend. And then he said this at the very end He said, Dear friend, death cannot destroy us, for it has already been destroyed by him for whose sake we suffer. He's reminding his friend of something powerful beloved. He's reminding his friend of the resurrection hope that they have in Christ. Death has already been destroyed by Jesus. And so, we march now not to death per se, but into the presence of Christ. And that is a powerful reminder when we are hard-pressed in this earth. There is hope in our trials, and I would tell you that that is our ultimate hope. Right there is resurrection. When we come to the final chapter of this Daniel, these first four verses bring the vision that we've been seeing to a close. So at, at verse 4, the vision that we've been looking at since Daniel chapter 10 is now done. We, we see that here uh, in, in, the, in the passage itself. But true to the whole book, these verses, what they're doing is they are reminding us that though we endure heavy trials, we have hope in the Lord. I know that sounds very generic, but that's exactly what Daniel has been saying the whole time, that though we endure heavy loss, though we endure heavy trials, though we walk a difficult path, we have hope in the Lord. And this paragraph is short that we just read, but it conveys some very rich, deep things as it gets to the hope of God's people the resurrection. We're getting ready to celebrate that here in, in a few weeks or several weeks. Um, but that is the hope of our people. That is, that is what God's people, that is we build our lives around the reality that this world is not it. It's not all that there is. That this world in its present state is not our home. Now, God is going to make a home for us eventually, but right now, this is not our home. Our home, our citizenship is in heaven with Christ And that becomes the fullest reality. Of course, when we die, we're with Jesus, but that reality is fully and finally realized at the resurrection. And it's a powerful hope that we have. It's powerful enough, in fact, that it's compelled men and women through the centuries to give their very lives for this message. So our future glory, it really does make present sufferings pale in comparison. That doesn't mean they're easy. That doesn't mean that it's light and it doesn't cost us much. They're costly. I I can't imagine how much uh, we've had to pay in this room for, for, for present struggles and trials. But the beauty of it is, is that one day, they are over. We're done. And we are in the presence of our Lord awaiting the final resurrection. Well, the unique aspect of this paragraph is, in fact, the mention of resurrection because almost all the references to the resurrection come in the New Testament. So, this will make Daniel relatively unique in the Old Testament. It's not the only reference in the Old Testament. Of course, some are debated, I won't get into it, uh, but some see a reference to the resurrection in the 23rd Psalm. We can deal with that with another time. But what it does, Daniel is giving us a deep theological truth, and it makes sense that Daniel would mention that here to me. It makes absolute sense because he's alluded to our need for God's intervention, given the enemy that we face. And so resurrection is a natural theme. The enemy that we face is powerful, yes, strong, yes. He is, can do great harm, yes. But there's one thing he can't do. He can't ultimately take your life. That's the point of Daniel. Because at the end of it, the righteous will be raised up. Beloved, and that is our hope. And it's not a small hope. It's not a light hope. But it's important. Why? Well, I won't go there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great chapter on the resurrection that Paul wrote, Paul says if the resurrection is not true, we're to be pitied. He pins the hope of the Christian on that one event in Christ that our hope is in the resurrection of Christ because it was by the resurrection of Christ and then by our resurrection, Christ was validated through his and the message of God is validated through ours and we will raise up on that last day when Jesus comes. And so Daniel is getting at that here. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see and it's this. It's that in Christ, we can endure when evil does its worst. In Christ, we can endure when evil does its worst. When you're looking at this, there's the two Ds that are present here in these first four verses are the two Ds we've been dealing with throughout this whole book, distress and deliverance distress and deliverance. That's exactly what Daniel is dealing with here. It's what we have continued to deal with. There will be distress, and then there will be deliverance. There's distress, there's deliverance. If you go through the cycles of judgment in the book of Revelation, it works out just the same. There's distress, there's deliverance. There's distress, there's deliverance. And so Daniel is kind of putting this little theme right here. It's the bow tie on the end of this book, kind of wrapping it up. Yes, that's exactly what this book has been about. But we're kind of seeing here yet again that hardship and trial really are opportunities to trust God. Now, I can say that very easily, right? It's easy to say. The reality is, is it's much harder to live that out because when we see hardship and trials, how often is our first response, hey, this is an opportunity for me to trust God? Probably very rarely, probably very rarely do we, is that our first response. In fact, that may not even be our second, third, or fourth response, It may take a little while before we get to that spot, but and I'm preaching to myself here this morning, but perhaps we need to be asking the Spirit through prayer to gird our hearts to start looking at hardship and trial as opportunities to trust God, and not so that we can say, well, that's no big deal, or slough it off, or not lament, or not act like they're really serious. No, beloved, it's so that our hearts, when we go into difficulties, can be set rightly i.e. our hearts become, I want to live for God, I want to serve God, I want to know the love of God and be a conduit of the love of God, and not always, I just need it to get easier. Because I confess, I confess, I stand guilty. My first response is generally, God make it easier. And perhaps what God wants to do is say, yeah, I could make it easy, or I could teach you a lesson on trust, will you trust me when you can't see around that corner? Will you trust me when it looks like the flames are too high? Will you trust me when it seems like the waters are too deep? And will you go there if I lead you? Beloved, that's what God is asking us in trial. So He's asking of you is what He's asking of me. Now, this doesn't mean we should try to make our lives as hard as it can be right? You, you don't have to be a glutton for punishment either. So, there is a balance here. I don't, there's, no, there's no problem with looking you know, sometimes for a simple solution, but we just need to know that there's not always going to be a simple solution, and the choices that we have to make are, are rarely easy. So, when we look at the text here, how does Daniel start this paragraph off? "'At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people,' Now at that time, again, what is he doing here? Well, he's setting a context. He's giving us a note of time. That's not the main idea. That's not the main objective there. When you see that phrase that we've become so familiar with now in Daniel, we are getting that reminder that God is in control of the time. So at that time, God controls it. God is in control of everything that's happening here. Nothing is happenstance. Nothing is is um, coincidence. God is weaving details together at that time shall arise Michael. Now, Michael, we've met in this book already. We've been familiarized with who Michael is, but Daniel clarifies just so that we make sure the great prince who has charge of your people. So, Michael, one of God's archangels, his primary objective, his task in God's kingdom is to labor and serve God's people. So, the angels are ministering spirits. That's what we're told in the Bible. And Michael's primary ministry is the people of God. But it's interesting I, don't, I, don't, I normally don't try to spend a lot of time on names and what they mean. This one, though, is, is interesting because Michael's name means who is like God. And I love that that's the angel that God assigned to, to set over His people because when we look at the, the question, who is like God, well, beloved of God, isn't that the question that the entire book of Daniel is asking? Who is like God? Is Nebuchadnezzar like God? Is Cyrus like God? Is, are the Persian kings like God? Is Darius like God? Is Belshazzar like God? And the answer is no. The, the, question, it, the, the question answers itself. Michael's name, who is like God? Daniel says, no one is like God but God. And that's what we walk away from this with. What is he doing? he's setting Yahweh, Yahweh, the covenant God, above the pantheon of gods and the whims of men. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't, he's not frivolous, he's not capricious. He is wholly righteous. He is holy holy. He is holy good. He is holy love. He is holy justice. And he's unique in these ways. He's unique in these ways because nothing else, nobody else, there's nothing that we can compare him to. So he's unique in his character, right? Completely holy righteous. But he's also unique in love of god and his capacity to save who can save like god saves nobody who can love like god loves nobody who can be righteous as god is righteous nobody so he's unique in his character and his capacity to save and i love the fact that michael's name means who is like god that is the burning question in daniel and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And so, literally, Sarah and Hebrews distress, a time of trouble or distress. What is Daniel getting at? Of course, there's two there's two theories of thought here, or two avenues, two primary avenues of thought here. That what Daniel mentions here is something that happens in the future that would be a, that would be um, like a parallel with the great tribulation in Revelation and that this is a future time of tribulation that will be nothing like it in the history of the world that will happen at some future date in connection with the return of Jesus. That's one line of thought. Another line of thought is, is that people who understand the last days of Jesus' life, death, ascension, or resurrection and ascension as beginning what would be called the last days, they see this time of distress taking place in the period between Jesus' ascension And his return to the earth. So in essence, we would be living in these times of distress presently. How you understand the book of Revelation generally informs how you understand this passage in Daniel. I tend to understand Revelation more symbolically, and so I see that these this time of distress that that Daniel mentions here that we are actually presently living in. Because I look at the world since Jesus' come and, re- and, and return back to heaven, and I see the distress. I see the earthquakes, the famines, the wars and rumors of wars. Beloved, If I've said this before, but if you look at the 20th century, how many Christian martyrs were killed in the 20th century alone? More than all the other centuries combined. And so we are looking at a time of, of division, of injustice, and constant war, and constant disease, and we're being ravaged by nature and ravaged by one another. And so we're looking at a time of distress. When we look at the world, what do we think the remedy is right now? If we're honest, when we look at all that's going on, what, do we, what will we say? Jesus needs to come back. Jesus needs to come heal this. Jesus needs to come make this right, because we're at a place where that's all, that's only, the only remedy that's going to do it. And so Daniel is, prophetically giving us this time of distress that will be inaugurated by the life of Christ. That's how I understand it. But you know what I love about this? If you ever read other uh, religious texts, they're not as honest as God is with His people about the fact that you are going to suffer. There will be times of distress basically like never before is what He says. You will suffer. He's not saying you might He's not saying that we, it's possible. He's telling us that we will. That rings a note of truth for me, that He's giving us the truth without rose-colored glasses. But why does He do that? Why does He give us that truth? A, because He's an honest God. B, to prepare us. But C, the most important is to remind us that we can't do it without Him. If we were left to ourselves uh, or to ourselves, who in this room could stand? Not a one of us, Not a one of us. And when we come to these struggles that are, feel so insurmountable, it reminds us, "I can't do this on my own. I must have Christ. I don't know about you. That's the reminder I constantly need. But what I love about this distress that he mentions is that it's balanced. There will be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. We've got to love this. This should thrill our hearts. At your, at, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Who are those written in the book? Those whom God has saved. Who are the ones who delivered? The ones written in the book. Those whom God has saved. What is the deliverance talking about here? Well, I think in some senses we experience in our lives some sort of what we would call temporal deliverances. That means momentary, where I think that you've probably prayed before, as I have, for God to relie- release you from a situation or, or change or, or see that something happens or doesn't happen, and, and God does. He answers the prayer, and, and we find ourselves delivered from a hard or sore trial. But I don't think that's ultimately deliverance that Daniel is getting at, nor the angel who's given him this vision. I I think that while God does do that for us, and I'm always grateful when He does, the deliverance there is ultimate deliverance. It's eternal. I mean, why mention that in the context of distress? To remind you, yes, it's going to be hard, but you won't succumb to it because eventually I'm going to deliver you out of it. You're mine. I will preserve you. You know, if we want to use this, the phrase preserve, I love that word because that's what God does. Preserve doesn't mean that I'm taken out of it, preserved means that I'm held in the midst of it. And that's what we have to remember. That's the beauty of this deliverance that we speak of here. But I love the way that the vision balances out that way. Yes, distress, but even more, yes deliverance. Beloved, you know, we find it easy to focus on the distress and not the deliverance. And perhaps we can begin to pray, God, help me find joy in the fact that deliverance is coming. It's not a matter of if it comes. It's coming. And when I can see my deliverance, perhaps the distress just won't have the big booming voice that it often does. You know, I've met people in my life that I've said of them, they're the type of person, they're the type of people that you come across every now and again that if they won a million dollars, they'd find something to complain about. You ever, you ever met that type of person that somebody just, they can find something critical in every good thing? And I think we Christians can do that, maybe too, in a different way, that we can get so lost in what's right here that we're losing sight of the, the true hope that's beyond what's right in front of me. In essence… I'm looking through my distress, and I can see it's there, but I get so focused here that I so often fail to just look over it and be reminded. Man, Let's pray for each other to, do, to look over the distress and be reminded of that future glory that's there. That's not a maybe. That's a promise that is there. Daniel continues to build on this idea of deliverance. So, delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, clearly here we've got, a, we've got an allusion to the resurrection. It's a clear mention of resurrection hope. Daniel uses the familiar terminology, those sleeping in the dust of the earth. Sleeping implies those who have died, those who have… Paul uses that analogy in First Thessalonians, those who have died and who are, are now awaiting something, awaiting the resurrection. Now, Perhaps you looked right there on the front of that verse and you thought, well, why does he say many? Does that imply that not everybody will die and resurrect and face either judgment or righteousness? Well, no. Think of it like this. Hebrew doesn't always use the word many to think, to categorize a select group of people. What it's doing, think of, read it this way, the multitude who have died or the many who have died will be raised up. It's getting at the idea, the implication is all. But it's like the many or the multitude of people at that point who have died will be raised up. That's kind of what Daniel is saying here. That's how we should understand the Hebrew here. So the implication is everybody who sleeps in the dust of the earth will awake. And they will awake to glory or judgment. That's the the reality. They will awake to glory or judgment. The idea is no one escapes it, no one is going to get away from the judgment of God. And so when we look at this, this resurrection, some to glory, some to judgment, I love how graphic it is. it It should be burned into our minds that some to everlasting life and some to, literally, to the shame and everlasting abhorrence or contempt. Some to life and some to shame. Well this is reminding us here that all evil will be judged every bit of it no matter how powerful it is no matter how powerful it seems right now evil is not insurmountable it feels like it though when we live in a world it feels that way we live in a world where we see evil it the 3D's it does it destroys it devastates it dominates And in this kind of evil culture, people rule by fear, and they cultivate a culture of death. They play on the fears of humanity. And as powerful as that is, let me remind you this morning of the the one overarching truth. As powerful as it is, it will crumble before the Lord. It will melt like wax before the Lord. And we have seen it happen over and over and over. When we think of evil, of course, there are different names that come to mind. Maybe Hitler, maybe Stalin, maybe uh, Chinese dictators or North Korean dictators or Russian dictators, whatever names come to mind, every one of them and from the past have died or is dying or will die, and every one of them have been judged or, and will be judged. No matter how big of an empire they built, no matter what they did, Because evil does not have the last word. Evil is temporary. Evil was brought into this world by sin, and it will be excised when Christ comes back. And so we don't have to fear evil. I understand that we do from time to time, but there is something bigger than evil at work in the world. But when we think about the word that he uses in verse 1 in connection with verse 2, deliverance, I want for us to see that one of the primary acts of deliverance for the people of God is resurrection. It is resurrection. That is the final restoration of God to us and to the world. We have hope in this life, beloved, and it's not in life getting easier. It won't. The hope we have in this life is in the resurrection that is to come, we have hope, not in this world somehow getting a little bit brighter, but we hope in a world with no sin, with no death. We hope in resurrection bodies with no depression, no anxiety, no decay, no weakness. Perfect, just like Christ, made in the image of Christ, in the beauty of Christ. See, what resurrection does is is it gives us the ultimate resurrection. It gives us a life with, with no pitfalls, no shoe waiting to drop. It's a life of going back to the way God originally made it to where we would have no hint of shame, to where we would be in perfect relationship with Him, and we would live basking and reflecting the glory of God. That's the hope we need. I hope you do well in life. I hope God blesses your finances. I hope if you have children, they grow up in the admonition of the Lord. I hope that we laugh together. I hope that we have fun together. I hope those things. But beloved of God, our hope, our true hope is in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. He mentions here in verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So verse 3 is talking about the same person. It's a classic case of uh, what would be a parallel statement where he's describing the wise twice. The wise are those who also turn people to righteousness. Now, as you might expect, there's some debate about who the wise actually are in this context. Some people think the use of the word in Hebrew there that he uses stipulates that it would be some sort of teacher of the law or some sort of rabbi. That he's talking specifically about those wise people who teach the wisdom of God, that those are the ones who will shine like the brightness of the, the expanse of the heavens. Of course, the other view is that, well, given what we've been going through in Daniel, he's talking about those who actually take the scriptural precepts of God seriously and live them out. So that the wise in that, in that scenario would be those who are imitating God by living out His Word, by living out the precepts of Scripture. I think it's those who follow Scripture, those who live in the imitation of God, those faithful saints who are living out the precepts of the Bible and causing other people to see it and turn to righteousness. That is consistent to me with the book of Daniel. That He's instructing all God's people to live in such a way that you will shine like the brightness of the sky and turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, if we shine because we live for God and we lead others in righteousness, Jesus Himself, who said, I am the light, called us also His people. Remember, you are the light of the world. When He talked about us having salt and light, He called us the light of the world, And so, we shine as the people of God who live out the precepts of God because we take them seriously. So, if we want to talk about evil, let's back up a little bit. What is the primary way you and I fight evil? Well, we're not cosmic warriors, so we're not doing anything like that. The primary way that God's people fight evil, the primary way is to seek righteousness and to live it out. How do we seek righteousness, Brad? By coming to the Word of God and asking, How does my life, how can my life more and more line up with this Word? This righteousness that's in this Word. It seems so easy to say, Well, we fight evil by living righteously. But we also have to find those desires for sinful things, and we have to fight the sinful desires that are constantly at war in our hearts. And that's where we need the Spirit because everybody in this room has sin patterns that we go to. And sometimes we go to them for comfort. Sometimes we go to them thinking that that's going to make me feel better in this moment. And really, what God's Word says, if we want the joy of the Lord, we live in righteousness. Verse 4 brings this vision to a close. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase." So, he tells him to seal up the book, and there are a few reasons that you would do that. He, what he says specifically is, shut up the words and seal the book. So, in one sense, he's closing off this, this vision and sealing it up. Well, he would do that to protect it, to make sure that it's kept safe, that it's not altered, that it's not messed with, that this Word of God would stay true and right, but to me, it, but we need to remember that in the ancient world, the seal was a symbol of authentication. If it had been sealed with something, this thing is now authentic. This is not just any scroll. This is the scroll of God. This is God's scroll. This is the scroll of His Word that cannot be altered and cannot be changed. There are some Who wonder if the sealed scroll from Daniel chapter 12 is the scroll that the Lamb in Revelation 5 and 6 begins to open? It's, I mean, you can make a case for it. There's nothing within the text that says, yes, that's it. But when Jesus opens the scroll in Revelation and begins to unleash on the world judgment, it would be consistent with some things that we've read in Daniel. I just give that to you as a bit of information. It's not in the Bible. It's a a conclusion that some people have come to. It sounds attractive, but you take that for what it's worth. He says here, "The, the scroll is sealed until the time of the end. Why is he doing this? Here again, God's appointed judgment. This is God's time, that our days are numbered by a good God, a good God who does long to be gracious to us. Now, Verse, the, the last half of verse 4 is a little odd. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, that run to and fro, there's a, a few examples in the Old Testament. One that will, you will remember is when Job, in Job chapter 1, when Satan is described, he's described going to and fro on the earth that phrase generally tends to indicate something that is wicked or not good that is happening. And so when Daniel mentions it here, people will increase in knowledge. They'll run to and fro. Think of this. Think of this frantic, frenetic pace of life, and people are running to and fro, and they're going to increase in knowledge, but none of that helps them. None of that knowledge saves them. None of that knowledge puts them where they need to be. What is he driving at? We need a Redeemer. Yes, we need knowledge of Him and we need to know Him, but we physically need a Redeemer to come in and transform our lives. How will we stand in the day of evil, beloved of God? It won't be all in our own merit. It will be upon Christ. And so when we look at this, we understand that the preservation of the saints is a good and true promise. God's Word and experience teach us that we live in troubled times and that those troubles will persist and increase until the kingdom of God is fully consummated. And though we do experience distressing times, we do have hope. And it's not a light hope. We have hope because we know that the kingdom of God is coming and will be fully consummated. Seasons of despair, they come, Depression is real. Devastation is a constant struggle. Anxiety hurts. All those things are painful. And those are just the psychological things that we deal with. There are physical maladies that we have to struggle with. There are relationship difficulties that we have to deal with. There are tricky ethical things that we have to navigate. And all these things are true, which make life hard. But we have victory in Christ this morning. If you're in Christ this morning, you have victory because Christ has finished the work. So we have hope because we have the life of Christ at work in us, and that life can never be defeated. That's exactly what John 1, in his prologue, John chapter 1, tells us, that the darkness has not, will not, cannot ever overcome the light, and therefore we have hope. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word of hope this morning, its power, its truth, and beauty. It is so rich, and God, you are so faithful. Forgive us for our faithlessness. Forgive us for not believing it. Forgive us for, for choosing avenues that are sinful to numb instead of embracing the distress, knowing that beyond the distress there is true and genuine hope. Oh, Father, thank you for your Son. Jesus, thank you for sending the Spirit And we thank you that all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, work to bring us to a good end. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.